0: Hello, world. This is the Speed Strengths Troll. I'm Christian. I'm Tommy. And do you think there is a correlation between how badly you have to go to the bathroom and the distance to the bathroom? Ooh. Meaning in this case, the closer you are to the bathroom, the more you, the more likely you need to go versus the farther you are from the bathroom,
1: the less likely you need to go. That's got to be somewhat true a little bit. Even when you go use the most basic test of children, you're at the gas station on a road trip pulled over and the parents <laughs> yeah. are always like, Hey, we had a long ways to go. Now it's the time to go. If you got to go every kid, hundred percent of the time, no, nope, we're good. We're good. We're gold. You get 10 minutes down the road. You're 30 minutes from the next washroom. Everyone's got to go.
0: Yeah. Like I. This is purely from observation. This is almost like I feel like how a lot of science experiments get started because you think you're observing something in the quote unquote wild, so to speak. And then you're like, okay, we got to try to control some of the factors and see if this is actually true or not, because like that's a that's a prime example. Like I was also one of the things that got me thinking about it was when I lived in Edmonton. And I used to walk like 15 minutes to the grocery store and like, don't need to go to the bathroom, walk to the store. And then all of a sudden you're like in the aisle and you're the, the checkout aisle and you're ringing the groceries through and you're like, I have to go to the bathroom so bad. And so then you're panicking. You're trying to like stuff all your groceries into the bags you brought and all this type of stuff. You race out of the store And then by the time I get home and I'm like putting the key in the door, it's like, Oh, I don't really have to go that bad. Like, so that's where I'm wondering, like, is there some sort of, I guess it would be an inverse correlation. Maybe. It would be like an inverse relationship. Yeah. Where like you said, yeah, the more accessible the bathroom is the less you need to go. And then the moment a bathroom is not accessible. It like, it's like, yeah, you well, there is so that,
1: that piece to this where, when when you're walking home with your groceries in Edmonton, yeah, like your your brain is almost going, "Oh man, we don't have any options here." Like, and it makes it psychologically worse. Whereas when you have the luxury of, "I can get up and in ten seconds, I'm there," it almost makes it psychologically less like urgent. Yeah, or demanding. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But I was just I'm like, I'm wondering if there's actually like I think it'd be a waste of time to actually study it. Like if someone's out there doing a PhD project on this, like, no disrespect, but there's probably more important things we could look at. Um But like I I definitely have experienced it. So I was like, this I gotta ask Christian then and see if like is there truth to this? Is that real? Is like is just a figment of my imagination. I don't know.
1: I think there's a piece to it. I'm always really bad when you're in calls and meetings. Like that's always the worst for me when you're locked into a room and you can't get out. I feel like it's similar sort of ideas. Like you can't leave whatever's going on. Yeah.
0: You maybe no longer have like a physical barrier to the bathroom. Like, because there could, like you might walk out of the room and there could be a washroom right there. But so, you can't you're, but you can't leave. So the distance is, it, it's not like, Oh, I'm really far away from a, a washroom so I can't go it's like like you said yeah I, I, I can't leave this room or this like in the middle of a presentation I'm giving or whatever so now I can't go but now now because I can't go I really need to go yeah so yeah I was just curious if you've ever experienced that because like I said I feel like that was every time I made a trip to the grocery store in Edmonton I'm like panicking, leaving the grocery store. And then by the time I get home, I'm like, uh. Like an hour later, you're like, oh, yeah, I need to go to the bathroom.
1: I mean, well, then I guess grocery stores but in the moment. Drink. Well, I think
0: they started closing public access to the. The bathrooms and. The grocery stores I went to didn't have bathrooms. What kind of grocery stores are you going to? I went to the no frills.
1: Man, that's the first problem.
0: the No Frills and the Sobies. Sobies is like you know
1: upscale, allegedly. Like you definitely pay more for things there. Oh yeah, like, that's a fact. It is. It's fancy groceries. Those cucumbers are uh, different. Taking care of at a premium. Yeah.
0: So that was. I feel like every time, like clockwork, that it was like that. Like checking out at the grocery store had to go so bad, and then by the time I got home. You unload the groceries to do whatever. And then an hour later, you're like, oh, yeah, I kind of have to go to the bathroom. And you've completely forgotten about it. But when you were when I was in the store checking out, paying with my credit card, the only thing on my mind was how badly I had to go to the bathroom.
1: Yeah, there's going to be a psychological piece to that of proximity and availability of something and making it feel worse. I feel like I'm trying to think of some of the other feelings that people have, like hunger. Like if you're out on the road or you're walking and you've got no access to food, I'm starting to think now if you feel more hungry. But then when you actually get home or you go sit down at a restaurant, and you're like, ah, oh, I actually don't feel like I'm dying anymore. with hunger.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I wonder if the food is different because there's like a visual. Like there's like I don't know if people go to the bathroom because they're bored, but you definitely eat sometimes because you're bored like, ah, I'll just grab a few snacks out of the, like, whatever. I got nothing to do. Let me grab a few snacks. But no one's like, ah, I'm kind of bored. Let me,
1: let me go to the bathroom and, you know. So, like, <laughs> I, I do see, wonder. There could if, be people out there. I could see people who work, like, desk jobs where they sit in their desk all day. And they're like, ah, oh, I need to get up and move around. I'll just go to the wash. I could see that. I could see how that works. It's like the smoke break equivalent. But, yeah. if, you, but if, if you don't, don't
0: smoke. smoke. If you don't smoke and you can't make the excuse of oh, "I got to go for a smoke break" or "a oh, bathroom break,"
1: I I'm see bored. That. I'm going to the bathroom. I can see that happening. If you if you sit around all day and you need an excuse to move around, but you can't just like walk and amble around. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Tommy, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just going to the washroom. The food one's interesting though.
0: But like I said, I wonder if there's like a visual aspect, like because you can see food and. Like, I, I don't know if that would be different. And it's hard for me to comment because I feel like I'm just hungry all the time. Yeah. So I'm eating all the time. And if I don't eat for a while, it doesn't matter where I am, what I'm doing, I'm really hungry. And I can't wait to eat. So I that, at least for me, it doesn't feel like a, like the proximity to food or the ability to eat food would, like... Half the time I eat a meal and I'm like, I'm still hungry. I'm going to go eat more.
1: Oh, yeah. I Whether can't it's eat available or
0: not. Yeah. Yeah. As for the bathroom, I've definitely noticed a difference where, oh, you can't go to the bathroom. Okay, I really got to go. And then as soon as you have access to it, it's like you somehow forgot
1: about it. Yeah. Because the thing I can think of, especially on the food end, where it's, this is classic for me, is you go and you eat something at like a restaurant or you go and get food. And eat food. You're like, oh, yeah, okay. Kind of full. Like, I had some food. feel somewhat satisfying. You hop in the car to go home. And as soon as you're in the car, it's like, oh, man, I'm starving again. <laughs> you like, I should have ordered more. That happens all the time. And it's a yeah. similar effect. Maybe it's not the same as the, the washroom example, but I get that all the time where it's as soon as I hit the car from leaving a restaurant, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go home. and going to crush a bowl of cereal, maybe a PB&J. Yeah, you need something. You're like, I'm not done yet. No- I need more food.
0: So I, yeah, I wasn't sure if there was, if this was just something I experienced, if that was my, for whatever reason, every time I went to the grocery store, I, I dealt with that. Uh, Or if there is some like actual truth, but the road trip is a good example. Hey, everyone, let's go. We're at a stop. No, no, we're good. And then you hop in the car and you're five minutes down the road and you're stuck on the highway down to the next stop and everyone's got to go. Oh yeah. I hadn't really
1: thought of that example. Well, i i've noticed it too when you're leaving plate like if you're out and about doing stuff and you leave wherever you're at you always gotta wash my drive home always yeah you're like i should have gone before yeah I left. you're like oh i should have went when i was in the restaurant or whatever and you're on the road and you're like we can't get to the house soon enough here like you're going 30 over the speed limit trying to get back to the house to get home yeah and the last thing you need to do is get
0: pulled over you're like i ah, can can you give me the ticket later i've really got to go to the bathroom
1: can you, can you follow me to my house and give me two tickets? Like I'm dying here, man. I wonder what they'd say to that. There's no way they haven't. There's They've no way the cop hasn't pulled someone over and been like, "Why are you speeding, and sir?" Is like, I really go to the washroom. Can you just follow me and we can deal with this later? <laughs> I guarantee that's happened. There's no way it hasn't. And then they're probably like, "Okay, forget it, just go." If you were bold enough to
0: say that, I'm I'm not wasting my time. <laughs> you know what, sir.
1: Enjoy your day. Enjoy your day. Go home. Go home. Like take care of business. One with that, like the thing that's super important. If you're gonna rush back home to go to the washroom, you need a strong foot to hit that gas pedal hard. No, just
0: hit the throttle with full go. Just a lead foot. Just boom. Oh, you probably don't want a lead foot for sport.
1: No, it's got to be light. It's got to be fast. It's got to be bouncy. It's gotta have a lot of different qualities. Compliant. compliant yeah
0: yeah so yeah kind of diving back into the into the foot again for what should be the second of two parts um kind of going over more like the actual to me this is kind of more the fun part of it's the actual training the actual interventions the exercises the way that we program it in um the other stuff is kind of the the necessary evil of like, you gotta go through the details. You gotta understand the anatomy, how the foot functions, all that type of stuff um, in order to be able to soundly implement it. But it's the actual training, programming, implementing, coming up with exercises. To me, that that is the fun part. So to okay. me, I'm looking forward to this part because this is more like the ins and outs of what we'd actually do on a daily basis with training the foot, so to speak. Um, as opposed to like the the theoretical how does the foot function and how should we train it this is the nitty-gritty of what we actually do
1: yeah when you're on the floor this is how we're actually going to execute and I actually I very much enjoyed our conversation last time around some of the theory and the anatomy of the foot and how it functions that was something that was a lot that was quite enjoyable for going down because it was a little bit fresh and something I found that's always ignored by people is, and we talked about in the last episode of no one really goes into depth of the foot, right? Like it's it's very oversimplified. People are like, oh, they're a supinator or they're not. Or not a supinator, sorry, a pronator or they're not a pronator. Like when someone's running, for example. So that's always the classic one. It's, oh, they're an overpronator. So we're gonna do this stuff and call it a day. Whereas it's, it's, there's a lot more nuance to it which I think we're starting to see in a lot of the research and stuff out there of, okay, the foot's got a lot more elements and layers to it. That a lot of people just aren't thinking of or they're focusing on just the calf and the ankle and they're ignoring all the other parts downstream yeah i was gonna say that i i'm the the guilty
0: party of like hand up guilty as charged of that type of stuff like especially 100%. over the last year or two i've done a i think i've done a much better job of being more thoughtful with the ankle and the low leg and not being as passive with the training i've actively put in a variety of eccentric, yielding, overcoming ISOs, um, sorry, yielding ISOs, I should say, um, with straight leg variety, bent leg varieties, um, various durations, so very long, extensive holds, very short, high intensity holds, uh, max effort, again, like the overcoming ISO, a lot of different tools and implements done, I think I've done a much better job over the last year or two of putting emphasis on the low leg and the ankle in a in a thoughtful way of okay, we're moving through in in this direction or we need a little more bent leg if we're doing this type of training, we need a little more straight leg varieties if we're doing that type of training and having a bit of a a map for that. but the foot is something I've kind of only recently started to apply the same sort of um, I guess, A, giving it the respect it deserves and, and actually giving it the time, but also putting sort of the thoughtful intention behind, like, what are we doing with the foot? Not just throwing random things in like, oh, this is a quote-unquote foot exercise. I'm putting it in there, but thoughtfully, intentionally putting things in to meet a specific purpose that we're trying to,
1: you know, tackle. Yeah, we're at work right now. I'm working with the, uh, the S&C coach. For triathlon and we've gone down the similar rabbit hole of the foot and training of the foot and that was sort of sparked on by us by jeremy Shepard, who who gave us an awesome presentation on it and it's it's almost very similar to a plyometric progression that you would classically see with a lot of people or a squat progression that you would classically see with a lot of people of but almost more elements to it because the ankle does so much when we're building this foot progression we've had it branch off like seven different ways of Oh, okay, like there's this style of moving with the ankle or this character so moving the ankle. This is how we progress that. And then like it's gone so many different ways. And the complexity of it is is very interesting and realistic. If you're creative enough, training of the foot can go so many different directions. You have unlimited options. It's like being at a yeah. buffet
0: and you don't know what to like what to pick because you almost have like too many things to pick from.
1: When I feel classically, and we had this conversation a little bit last time, the foots very—I say the foot and the back—are treated very similarly, where you're almost in this purgatory of rehab exercises if you hurt your back versus if you hurt your foot and ankle, right? So if you're an overpronator, I feel like classically you're doing, you know, banded eversion ankle. So you're doing your toe crunches, maybe you're doing like intrinsic toe control lift stuff, and you're just in that purgatory forever. And it's never bridged back to your sport of, okay, we've got a foot or an ankle injury. We're gonna start with some of these banded exercises, some of these toe exercises, some these toe crunches, but there's never a path of, okay, we're at this level of this very basic rehab exercises. Now let's get you back to sprinting, for example. How do we bridge that gap in terms of loading, specificity, sequential training structure, actually loading the tissues properly, which is something I think, and that Roman Terrellian article is awesome of, in terms of yeah, how we actually move the foot. The stuff from Roman
0: is, like, phenomenal. Yeah. And if you have no idea what you're doing, you should probably start basing your stuff off of that to at least give you a, like, a starting, starting block to work with. Um, yeah. So that way you're not just, like, randomly slapping
1: things together. Yeah, so when you're... Uh... <gasps> When you're first starting to progress, Tommy, where uh, where's your starting point? I feel like there's a good place for us to begin with. Okay, you got someone. You're gonna start working with the foot, starting some foot stuff. Like, how do you? How are you getting going here?
0: So for me, it was a. I wanted to take a low risk mm-hmm. implementation of it because a it was sort of the uh, it was the timing of it. I had saw this stuff kind of in January. We are in season at this stage. Yeah, and if you are of the belief that the foot is as important as it probably we we think it's going to be. That's not just the kind of thing where all of a sudden you've done four or five months, month months of preparation, then you're about to compete and you have started competing and then you throw in these extremely loaded foot exercises. So even when you look at the, the general progressions from Romain with like 30, 40, 50% body weight load. I didn't want to load the foot with body weight plus 50% or something like that at that time because I wasn't sure A, if the foot is going to be prepared for that, because I was working on the assumption that everybody just had super weak feet because we had never addressed it. Mm -hmm. And secondly, you may have some unintended consequences as a result of that. So my first implementation of it was to use basic four and midfoot exercises mm-hmm. that were effectively body weight loaded um and I was using them on recovery day circuits as one of the exercises that was in there so some sort of foot bridge with no external load or we have those toe pro pads um so doing some like uh digit work mm. or forward leans to train the the, the forefoot um things like that in the circuits and in some warm up prep but it was all very low load body weight type things and i decided okay we're going to put that in the circuits we're going to put that in the some of the warm up or prep things to build buy-in and familiarity with this idea of training the foot and it's only actually now that i've started to progress into some of the, the loaded
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, like introductory loading. So not the maximal strength, but more the uh, hypertrophy esque um, kind of parameters. I'm starting to get into that now. And then my plan for next fall would be, okay, can we move from basic unloaded? I'll call them four foot, mid different foot exercises
1: yeah.
0: on the off days can I start to introduce more of the hypertrophy type work on the bigger days early on move into the maximal strength of the more intensively loaded activities and then at some point I'm going to blend it all together and it's going to have more of a foot ankle complex focus because then at some point I don't need to have an exercise for the midfoot exercise for the forefoot exercise for you know the big toe or the digits or whatever it's I, I need all of those things in conjunction with the ankle to work together so yeah. that's i don't know if that answers the question entirely but that's sort of the progression of where i'm starting with it how i introduced it to build some buy-in and kind of my proposed plan when i have everybody back in the fall and we're starting from scratch as a whole team again of kind of building it in throughout the <laughs> The, the training and the competitive year.
1: Yeah, that's the unfortunate part where we're both in our seasons is the experiment time isn't now. We're it, very much I didn't want to take the chance. Yeah. Yeah, the knock on effects of doing some completely novel, what are we, six weeks before nationals is quite severe, right? If they if they get really bad foot DOMs after all this new foot training, then it's like, okay, how does that interfere they're running or they're throwing or whatever's going on or right? they're jumping. So and it I, is a tough part of the year.
0: It could depend because you may be working with more individuals. There Mm -hmm. might be some people where you want to take that chance because they need a jump in performance. Maybe it's worth it. But if you have a person who's probably going to be on the podium in their event, you maybe don't want to take that chance because they're already in a good spot. And we we were the favorites on both the men's and the women's side collegiately to win the national title. Yep. So to me, it was like, okay, we just got to, we've gotten everybody to where they need to go. We can't afford to screw something up now in january february so to me if if we were a fifth or sixth place team maybe we take the chance with that and see if we can find some jumps in performance we weren't going to otherwise get but going in as the favorites i didn't want to rock the boat when we had already gotten some good work done and we were we were where we needed to be so i wasn't trying to take that train off the tracks
1: well, it's tough. So we on, on the para side for us, we have a couple athletes in that realm a little bit where if they want to be podium contenders, they need to take a bit of chunk, like they did take a significant chunk of, you know, second off in the 400 meter to be kind of on podium top four, top five conversation. And just by the nature of para, it's a very big spread. You know, eighth place will run a 52 mid and first place will run a 48 low, right? So it's a very large spread on that side, depending on the category. Yeah, but even then, from the foot side of things, and as we're going to get into this more, as it is important, the foot is for us. It wasn't the the game changer intervention. So we did some super maximally eccentric stuff with them. We did some aggressive plyometric work with them of, hey, we need to shave off a second, which is a lot of time for people who aren't familiar with the track world in a 400 meter. That's a that's a massive amount of time. Yep. And that's the piece too is as important the foot is it's i don't think it's going to be much of a game changer in terms of huge needle movers now could it set some good foundations i think so but in its isolation i don't think it's gonna be a piece where you do this intervention all of a sudden you're 400 500 600 a second faster
0: no it would have to be done in conjunction with some other kind of dice roll gamble type of training things, which, like I said, depending on the, the external factors you're dealing with, it may or may not be worth taking those risks. And at least in the scenario I was in it, it wasn't worth the risk. And I didn't have the information available to me. I mean, for example, with the, the heel raise test that, uh, Romain has in that article. I think yeah. it's very easy to implement. We also have a foot dynamometer that we have access to that I haven't really used yet. Mm, okay. um, so again, I was working off the assumption that everybody had weak feet because we had never trained it, but I didn't actually have the information available to me through something like that heel raise test and the foot dynamometer, which I do want to implement yeah. starting in the fall next year to have an idea of maybe who's in a better or worse spot with their foot strength. I was also working again. I didn't have the information where I knew, oh, these people have weak feet. These people have strong feet based on these assessments or uh, screens or tests that we had done. And so that's, again, something I think I want to implement in the fall to help kind of guide where do we need to go with, with certain people. But, you know, there was a chance that maybe there were people that had pretty good feet. And you put them through those tests and then you go, you know what, if we implement this unique style of foot training, it may not actually have this huge benefit on them because their feet might already be in a a really good spot versus somebody who doesn't have strong feet. They may see more return on that because it's a bucket that's, that's less full. Um, So I think that's an important factor to consider as well. And I I think that's where I'm going to go with call it assessing the foot or. Yeah just seeing, we do some screening days at the start of the year and it wouldn't take long to, Hey, let's do the heel raise test and see left versus right. And what number do you get, get on the foot dynamometer. Um, because Roman provides some guidelines as to what is adequate strength through the foot based on that heel raise test. And then I might be able to correlate some numbers on the foot dynamometer to, okay. The individuals that meet the criteria with the heel raise test are scoring in this range on the foot dynamometer, the people who are scoring lower on the heel raise test are scoring lower here, the gaps whatever. And then you can kind of identify, okay, who has a foot ankle complex that's working pretty well together and who has a foot in a more isolated fashion. That's working kind of the way that it, that it needs to. And I think as of right now, I mean, we're still a few months away from implementing that. I think that's my initial. I think this is how I'll put the assessment piece in there and then the, the training afterwards, how it would look like. That's my
1: proposed plan as of now. Does your dynamometer do both plantar flexion and dorsiflexion? Can it assess both? That's a good question. <laughs> I haven't even seen it.
0: I was told we ordered it and it's sitting in the, the clinic somewhere. It's so I haven't, in some corner. I haven't actually seen the physical device and tried it yet. Um
1: which I will obviously need to do before we test with it. Of course. No, because where my mind is going. So because very similar, as kind of you were mentioning there, we're planning on doing very similar just basic assessment of the foot. So we're looking at on the on the thirty degree slant boards. So we'll do like a soleus heel raise. So that's a like a heel raise with the front knee bent. Okay. And then more of gastroc dominant, where you got the straight leg heel raise. So we'll do those two va- different variations. Then doing oh, it so you would legs.
0: basically do the the test that Roman has in that article, but you would go straight leg and bent leg.
1: Yeah. So doing because
0: I think he only had it in there straight leg.
1: Yeah. So we would do both. Okay. We would do both a straight leg and a bent leg, especially for acceleration. For some of our athletes, where you're in a very deep bent leg position, I think there's it's a noticeable difference. It's worthwhile investigating versus if you're a jumper. Okay, they're mostly straight legged, or very upright, a little bit different. So we're going to assess both of those. Then we'll do dorsiflexion as well. So standing on that same third degree, but you're just going back against the wall, doing the toe raise for dorsiflexion. Oh, okay, it's like a wall tip raise type. Yeah. Okay. But even for you, you could do it once this year, where you do, you know, your your heel raise and then your toe raise. Do your dynamometer for plantar flexion, dorsiflexion, and depending on how like how close that correlation is between them if everyone's getting higher scores on the dorsiflexion plantar flexion is also getting higher force outputs on the dynamometer you it almost makes the dynamometer obsolete in that sense of like okay i never need to use this because the correlation is 0.95
0: yeah and that's where i think on that those intake screening days that we do you'd be able to start to kind of piece together some of those like you said assumptions from the or like assumptions from the correlates that okay if you're good at this you're probably good at that
1: yeah well especially for like you've got what 80 90 how many authors do you have
0: Uh, it could be i think we were 107 this year i don't know how many will be next year like there's a lot of people so yeah the the easier it is to implement if there's one test that can give me three pieces of information rather than three tests to get three pieces of information i'm going to take the easier pathway
1: of give me the catch all thing and go from there one well, for you like one test can add an hour of assessment time if you've got 100 athletes whereas if you have one test where it's hey we're just doing heel like heel raises and toe raises everyone partner up count each other like it can, you can implement things that make that so much quicker versus okay line up on the dynamometer we're gonna go one person at a time
0: yeah and that heel raise test if you have the that you can run the metronome and the whole yep. thing like you said you partner up and you okay go up down, up, down, up, down. They count, okay, record the scores. Okay, switch, let's go. Um, yeah, like it'd be way more feasible to implement something like yeah. that. But that's, that's something I'd also like to do. I think there's just some basic assessment things that I think would be worthwhile on that just to get an idea of maybe who has stronger feet, who has weaker feet, um, who might be ready to start with you know, maybe something a little more advanced, or if you know, you know, the ranges can, Oh, 60 to hundred percent body weight, additional yeah. load. Well, Hey, if this person's pretty strong, you can be more in the 80 to hundred. If you need to make some progress on this and you're not in the, starting in the, in the same spot, maybe you need to go more 60 to 80 to begin. Uh, and then it just gives you more information as the coach to help guide the athlete on maybe the loading parameters that would be most suitable for them.
1: Yeah. An interesting piece that we uh we got from Jeremy Shepherd as well in that course that we did. He was talking about the foot. So with the assessment, so you got the piece of obviously you're gonna get numbers of okay, I can do this many heel raises, this many toe raises. He brought up an interesting point of okay, I'm not only looking at the number, but also the strategy in which they're using. So he was looking at the foot from the set like the frontal plane. Yeah, and when you're doing your heel raise or your toe raise. He's like, where's the foot biasing or what's the strategy preferred yeah, for invert, that toe So am I biasing to the outside of the pinky toe? Like, is that my preferred strategy? Am I pretty straight up down in the middle? Am I biasing towards the big toe coming in? And he would actually then play with constraints with that individual around providing instability or using constraints to challenge the end of the foot. So for example, it was really interesting. If someone's doing their heel raise and they're biasing towards the big toe. Okay, got a bust to the big toe. So there might be something going on with tib post, things that help maintain kind of the the ankle and the MLA there. So he would then take a board or a plate or a kettlebell and he would position sort of the, the lateral side of the foot. So sort of the lateral pinky side, he's gonna put that on the stable surface, but then the big toe and the medial side of the foot are gonna be elevated off the ground. And then he would then get you doing like split squat calf raises or just standing calf raises on it, where you now have that challenge from the constraint of not letting yourself dump in. Because if you dump in where you were before, you're you're just gonna fall. That's so yeah, like, you have nothing
0: to support through there. So you're he's basically created a constraint where you're forced to use the part of the foot you're not comfortable with to stabilize the movement.
1: Yeah, so it's because an the other half the of the
0: foot isn't afforded that.
1: And it's something that I I found really cool to see because oftentimes when we assess, there's a bit of a feedback loop that's gonna go through, okay, we're doing this assessment, and then we're gonna figure out what the assessment means and then make the intervention. That's something you can easily look at and go, oh, you're doing this? Okay, let's put this constraint right now. Like it's something that's very easily actionable right now. Yeah, and
0: and you could program the same exercise for everybody. Yep. But then, oh, you need the board slanted this way. You need the board slanted that way. Exactly. It's the same exercise. It's you could call it like a half foot heel raise or something like that, or yep. you know whatever. But someone knows. Oh yeah, I need the board slanted this direction. Oh, I need the board slanted that direction. But it's you've basically put it in the program as the, the same exercise is going to be set up differently for different yep. individuals based on their like you said they're kind of biased or preferred. Uh,
1: movement strategy yeah yeah i just love that simplicity of assessment and act immediately like that connection's really tight and i feel like that's something we lose a lot in assessments is the assess analyze act can sometimes be long like that feedback loop can take some time and it's nice to have something like that. i can see it do it done yeah no i completely agree with that And i think that is a
0: like i'd never really thought about that but that's something as you're doing the the test that you're going to probably implement anyway like you said you can qualitatively look at where it where it is that romaine article talked about the second toe should stay aligned with yeah. the ankle and then if you see it deviating away from that then you'd be getting into exactly what you're talking about here with these the individual has a bias to one compensation strategy over another to oh i want to move pressure to the inside of the foot or i want to move pressure to the outside of the foot as i move through the ankle
1: yeah so that was that's an interesting piece on the the assessment end there um what are you looking at in terms of so when you start doing more of the hypertrophy maximal strength stuff where are you looking at going with some of the arch training or the forefoot i did like how romaine differentiated them of okay we got like arch stuff we're working mla We've got four foot. Are you categorizing similar way? How are you kind of looking at going, going about that?
0: Yeah. So how I've categorized the progressions that I've, that I've come up with is I have stuff for kind of the big toe or the digits. Yeah. There is stuff for more of the forefoot, foot and stuff for more of the midfoot or the arch. Mm. And then early on, you would work on those things kind of individually, and then maybe progress the exercises with load moving forward to load the big toe or the digits or to load the forefoot or to load the midfoot. And then at some point you're going to have to merge them together into those foot ankle complex um, exercises where they are working together. Uh, So that's kind of the general, it's almost like a bit of a funnel. I don't know. Have you ever seen Dan Johns? um, Periodization or progression of his exercises. He has one of the charts and it's like the funnel where they're where he's working towards kind of the end goal. And you start off with a lot of individual pieces. But then as you get more specific, it funnels down to being able to do this
1: one thing. Yeah, I think I've seen that funnel that you're talking about. Nick Cooper talked about a similar sort of structure. of The more specific you get, one movement is checking more boxes of what developing.
0: Yeah. So like early on, I might have. Yeah, like something for the first ray or the big toe, uh, the digits, whatever, something for forefoot, something for midfoot, and then you progress the load of that and all three of those are there. But then as you start to get into some of the more heavily loaded exercises where you might be supporting the arch, but then you're rolling or leaning forward. Okay, well, we're getting a little bit of midfoot and forefoot in both of those because as I'm supporting, I get midfoot. As I move forward, it becomes more forefoot. As I'm rocking in and out of that, doing like a three-second hold for the midfoot, rocking forward, three-second hold on the forefoot, then rocking back. So it's like now those things start to come together a little bit. Um, Or if you do something like those, the big toe elevated heel raise. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Now, okay, I'm getting a little bit of specific work through the big toe or the digits, but I'm also challenging the forefoot a little bit and the foot ankle complex is working in there. So some of the elements start to blend together. So that's kind of how I've loosely, I say loosely because I haven't actually gone through it from start to finish yet. That'll happen next year. So I may change some of the elements, but that is my proposed model right now is starting things a little bit, more, let's say separate and deliberate with the the intent of what I'm targeting. And then as the year goes on, it starts to funnel together because effectively I want the foot and the ankle working together. Um, And so then maybe on a heavy loaded day, it becomes more of a strength exercise on a, you know, faster, more dynamic day. It's more of a plyo. Um, And so, yeah, I've kind of used some, some progression models uh, like that and mostly looking at using it isometrically. Uh, so there's going to be, yeah, you might be rocking in and out of the movement, but much more exaggerated or deliberate holds. Okay. I want you to hold this posture for four or five seconds and now come out of it, move back into it, hold the posture for four or five seconds. Cause we know through some of the anatomy that we talked about last time that the foot tends to work in that isometric, let the tendons and the compliance of the foot do the work. So I want to train the muscles in a way that primarily going to be used in that function with the foot. And that's kind of where I'm at. Like I said, before i I'm actually getting getting going with it. Uh that's kind of my loose
1: progression model that I've put together. Yeah. Well intuitively it makes sense. It's it's very similar to a linear model that you'd like a linear periodation models. Okay, very early on, more exercises, a little bit more general as we get going through the year, the number of exercises cuts down, the specificity of it or the integration of it increases um, and all those components. right? So like, it's very much an intuitive model, which is that's it's nice to see how that kind of would go about and integrate through.
0: Yeah, and there's some little things that I've started to put in that are maybe different from the article or, or some of the research. Um, so to give you an example with like some of the midfoot holds um i've implemented those in the off days in the circuits with a split squat hold mm. which is a little bit easier i find than if you were doing it in a like a step up hold like if you look at the things from romans article where okay i'm in the midfoot bridge and i'm standing tall well all of the weight is over top of the foot yeah and you're bridging with the foot and you're maintaining that bridge where if i'm in a split squat position my center of mass is moved further back so there's not actually as much load moving through or not moving through but being loaded on the foot so for example within that progression i might okay let's do foot bridge in a split squat position and then when that becomes too easy we'll move to a midfoot bridge in a a taller position where more weight and more load is acting on the the foot so there's some small progressions or examples Within what I've put together like that, for example, where I can maybe be a little bit more deliberate or have other options available yeah. to progress people, progress people through because that's something I could probably implement day one. Everyone oh, yeah. comes in, we're doing our split squat hold, put a couple of the plates on the ground or something to elevate, hold that midfoot bridge, and then I can build a little bit of tolerance and resilience in the midfoot before moving into a very tall position where like immediately if you've never trained the foot, you're like, Oh, like I feel that. Yeah. So there's, I've put some other things like that in there to kind of help ease, I guess the the transition into training different aspects of the foot or different ways that I can add it into what we're already doing. Yeah. So I don't have to take up an exercise with, Oh, this is only for the midfoot. Yeah. I can, Hey, I'm getting my ISO hold at the hip and the quad but I can also
1: get the midfoot training a little bit and then be ready for stuff moving on in the future. Yeah. We've taken on a similar approach of that, of adjusting the things we're doing already to get some of that effect that we want. And yeah. Classic track athletes. We do a lot of hurdles in the warm-up. So step over, step backs, lateral step overs, all kinds of stuff like that. We've made a quick adjustment to it where it's, Hey guys, we're just gonna do it bare feet now. And I want you to float the heel. So when you're doing your different step over drills, don't let the heel come fly on the ground. Don't be relaxed with the foot. Be active and push down through the foot. We've made a little adjustments like that. Similar to you, we do a lot of loaded carry stuff or a lot of loaded marching work. Yep. Same thing. Okay, shoes off, barefoot, float the heel just, you know, half an inch off the ground. And it's just that little oh, microdosing is the wrong term, but microdosing that foot stimulus and a couple of different things as well. Whereas we're already doing this, let's take advantage of that and get a little extra stimulus out of this. That maybe we otherwise wouldn't. So, I like the idea that you're saying, of, oh, yeah, we're just going to do it in some other exercises that we're already doing and kind of kill two birds with one stone, sort of idea. Yeah. And for me, I just found that the easiest way
0: to implement it, at least initially when I had kind of first come across this and wanted to use it. So, it naturally kind of became the first kind of progression, so to speak. Um, at least for me, it was like, okay, where can we implement it into other things that we're doing? Um, if it's truly a like progression, that's where I use the split squat as an example because I do think that is a regressive form yeah. of implementing the the foot, the midfoot bridge, for example, because you are removing the center of mass from directly over top. Versus if I was going to implement that into a like a suitcase holder march that we were doing that would probably be much more strenuous on the individual because there's more load going through the bridge of the foot so i was using that to kind of figure out okay what are some of the movements we have where i can almost regress some of that stuff to go okay where can i introduce safely this idea of yeah. loading the foot in a way that's probably not going to have catastrophic consequences because i've now loaded
1: substantially a potentially very important structure in in the movement that we that we do. yeah, well, only just having a slider of movements that you know you can move along, depending on who's in front of you, especially with you with such a large group, it's easy to it's nice to have a slider where you can just constantly go, oh, that's really easy. Okay, do it this way on this exercise now. Like just slight changes where you can just move along for each individual. Yeah. like that makes your life so much easier in terms of a ensuring they're getting the necessary load. But then, like you said before, B not making sure you're overdoing some of them
0: exactly yeah cuz you have no idea what you're what you're getting into and then i feel like once we get to the stage where you're blending the foot and the ankle together that almost becomes a little bit more kind of just going through your low leg ankle progressions yeah at that's at that stage cuz you still need the foot to stabilize and and other things like that but you're really trying to get things working together i don't know how much of that will actually change i'll probably still use the the eccentric loading, the yielding and overcoming ISOs through the ankle, bent leg, straight leg, all those different varieties that I'm, that I'm using. I think the only difference I'm getting, I might make at the foot ankle complex is after reading that paper from out of the U of A with Dr. Chu and, uh, and Torstein there is if their study is showing a 22 degree incline we have 20 degree boards so close enough enough. if that is going to increase the muscle activation of the soleus and the gastroc as you do heel raise or foot ankle complex related activities well i might as well have you do all the things that i was programming you to do on a 20 degree incline because if i'm going to get more out of it then i might as well i don't think but that isn't to me a major shift in philosophy or progressions or your programming it's more just i'm going to add all my foot ankle complex stuff on a 20 degree or 22 degree and hey if i can find boards that are 22 degrees great i'll use them but the ones that we have are 20 degrees so like close enough type thing
1: yeah well it's silly not to right when you see such a big difference in terms of muscle activation at the foot and the ankle from just okay you do your heel raise on a slight Inclined board versus flat on the ground or on a plate i get silly not to at that stage right that's it's such a huge training imagine that accumulates over if you're doing your progression over the course of the fall all the way until march at nationals that's six months that makes a huge difference and accumulates over time
0: yeah and if you have that board that's at 20 degrees and you're going to use it for any of your heel raise holds or yeah foot ankle complex movements through that i mean when we also talked earlier about the you know do you need the board slanted towards the inside of the foot or the outside of the foot that board can be used for the same thing and whether somebody sets up a a plate and puts that on the ground and then pushes through when they do stuff or they take out the board that's 20 degrees and then push through like it it doesn't really change the the feasibility or the convenience or the inconvenience of setting up and doing that exercise so to me from a that's maybe the only change i'm gonna make moving forward at the foot and the ankle working together with the low leg and all that is yeah like you said based on reading that study there's there's no downside
1: to doing those things on a board that's a 20 degree incline no no and i'm looking at doing using that board for some of the bigger movements as well so i do a lot of kick, like you know the kickstand rdl with either dumbbells or kettlebells yeah or even a barbell i'm starting to do it where that front foot is actually elevated
0: so you yeah, put like the that toes
1: that. on the slant board so the heel of the front leg is actually off the ground while you're doing your kickstand rdl yep i've enjoyed that a lot i also find it helps people hinge one issue i find with the kickstand rdls is people always sit way back so that front leg is actually in front of the center of mass the piece i've noticed as soon as you elevate that heel and that foot they almost stay into the hinge more they feel way more into the glutes and the ham like upper hamstring and yep. less of like that stretch at the distal hamstring i enjoyed that playing with that constraint as well another cool thing a colleague of mine did with the athletes he's working with is he was doing the hand supported super maximal split squat mm-hmm. the same thing they're doing the floating heel he's like with the athletes i work with he's like they need that he's like everything they're doing is pushing to the ball of foot i believe he's. were I want to say it's some sort of cycling, like BMX or something like that. I'm not 100% sure, so don't quote me. But everything's pushing through that ball of the foot. So if we're doing a super maximal eccentric, he's like, I want that stiffness, the foot and the ankle. So just doing hand support split squats, super heavy, but the floating heel as well. And that's similar to what you're talking about integration before. But it's, it's interesting seeing these modalities applied in more classical ways as well. Like it's not something you have to incorporate on its own. Like no,
0: know. and that—that that to me is the beauty of the kind of the end of. If I go back to that funnel example, the end of the yeah. funnel when you get into the foot ankle complex, is I actually think it's a lot easier to program and build things in around that because oh, it's, yeah. like you said, it's taking something you're already doing and seamlessly integrating that aspect of the foot in there. Is where I think it's the earlier progressions where you have to put a little more thought and time and effort. Yeah into okay is this big toe and digits is this forefoot is this midfoot is this this is it that that's where i think it becomes a little more nuanced is the earlier stages of training when you're trying to attack a specific like this is for only the midfoot this is for only the toes but once you get later on it becomes like you said okay let me just make this adjustment and it's the foot the ankle the hip the knee everything working together in a in a movement where I actually find it a lot easier to implement is later on in those progressions. than it is more, more so earlier on.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, at that end stage of the funnel, our goal is for the athlete to be in there really as little as possible. Cause that's your thick competition season, especially with you in your university setting, you're racing every other weekend. The more exercises you have that check multiple adaptations or multiple training effects at a time it's less stuff you have to program it's less things they're doing it's less time there in the gym and it makes it so much more effective from your program okay we can come in and do three things not here's our laundry list we're gonna do something for this i mean like that process gets so much more smooth and then you just have so much more energy for what actually matters which is going running on the track at that time of year especially
0: yeah and so i'm envisioning like at the start of the year we might have some sort of like the the big day might be an olympic lift. Yeah. A knee dominant activity, a hip dominant activity, a and then at the end some sort of something for the foot, something for the low leg and an upper body movement. Some of those could be superset together whatever, but moving yep. forward you for sure can merge what you're doing for the foot and the the low leg together at some point. Cause yeah. that's when it becomes a true foot ankle complex activity that's being worked together. And then, like you said, you might even be able to work that foot ankle complex into a hip dominant activity that you're doing or a knee dominant activity that you're doing. So then, yeah, I could say at the start of the year, I have six exercises in September, October when we're trying to build the foundation, get a lot of work done. And then maybe in November it becomes five but then December or January, February, when we start to get into competing, it's four yeah. because now you've really merged things together. And, you know, again, something like that is what it might,
1: what it might look like. Well, in early stages, when you're in the fall where you're really trying to isolate it, it's very easy to just integrate that within the broader program. Right? If you're doing Olympic lifts or a heavy squat or whatever that movement is, here's this big toe or digits exercise as a superset with it or as a tricep with it where you've got to rest two minutes anyways this isn't really fatiguing the system all that much before you go back to another set of olympic lifts or squats so it's something like you can integrate all that stuff really easily and not really take that much more time and that's where i figured at the
0: end something like the upper body the foot and the the ankle stuff can be merged together or maybe if the ankle thing is a little more taxing low leg then i might hey go do your bench press and then you know, come do this thing for the toes and then go back into your bench. Like you could do, you could integrate it in that way. Very, like you said, very easily where you're, you're adding more work, but you're not necessarily adding more total time to what it's taking you to get the session finished from, you know, where the start time, yeah. where the start time is. Well,
1: it's an easy trap to fall into. And I feel like that happens quite often with especially young coaches when they discover something new they go, oh, foot training. It's a cool new thing. We've got to do it. It's super important to have a strong foot and a strong toe. But then what ends up happening is when they implement the program, they just have the normal program. Plus, and here's five extra foot exercises to do at the end. Then before you know it, your workout takes 30 minutes longer. And it just builds from there, right?
0: Yeah, and you don't know if you're actually getting the – is it – a is it beneficial? Is it a waste of time? You don't actually know because you're implementing something new. Yeah.
1: And there's a piece too, if you just throw it in at the end, both there's a fatigue effect of this is everything you're doing at the very end of the workout. It's similar to, uh, I've seen some stuff. I think it's Angus Bradley putting it out, but he talks about core training. Again, back to core training has a very similar effects. Say everyone's just core training at the end it's sort of the fluff about at the very end of the workout athletes are kind of fatigued. They're, they're they're ready to go home. Maybe they're a little bit zoned out and I feel like that can have an effect, but if it's integrated throughout the whole thing, you can get some of the foot training when they're really fresh You get some of the foot training in the middle. you get some of the foot training at the very end. You get less yeah, of that. Okay. I'm just going to go through the motions because I'm done with the work. And I want to go home.
0: Yeah, e- exactly. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the intention in general of just trying to keep the less in there the better because you're going to have more time and attention to focus on, on those things. So, I mean, yeah, I think from like a, an overall kind of programming or implementation standpoint, I think that's where I'm, it's probably the best kind of overview of where I'm at with that stuff right now. Again, talk to me in a year, once I've actually run it through an entire season, I'm probably going to have some things that I would change um, just having never implemented it from, from start to finish. Uh, but that's kind of my proposed idea of how I think I'm going to incorporate the foot into training moving forward uh, in a much more like thoughtful and deliberate way. Not just assuming that everything we're doing is training the foot well and yeah. the foot is good to go.
1: Yeah. Are you going to be playing much with... Uh plyometrics on surface. Cause I know that was something, again, the Roman materialian article showed that and you've seen it elsewhere where people have like the really big slant boards. There's a name for it. I don't really know what that is. The Polish boxes, Polish boxes. There we go. Where they'll do yeah. different, like blue, like altus hop rudiments, but on the Polish boxes, do you plan to use that at all? That was something I found interesting, especially in bare feet where it's, Hey, let's create some unique stresses, especially maybe early season more so or manipulate surfaces for hops.
0: That would have to be a conversation I have with, with the sport coaches amongst the yeah. different event areas because that gets done in, the actual technical session. Oh, okay, so there might be like a a jumps rudiment circuit or something like that that they do, that basically bridges the, okay warm up, out there for your technical session sprinting jumping, hurdling whatever it is, then jumps rudiment skip for height, skip for distance, different ankle hops, all these different kind of plyometric activities in nature. And then we go lift. Yeah. So that would be a conversation I would have to have with our event area coaches as to, Hey, you were going to do the jump circuit twice this week. Once do it on flat surface. Maybe the other day we bring up the slanted boards Yeah. and we do it like that. And then if, if we're on board, okay, great. Then we do it. If we're not, then, um, that that would be to me probably how I'd want to do it because then again, we're not necessarily adding to the session. It's not like I'm loading yeah. them with more plyos and foot contacts that they're already getting anyway at the, the technical session. And I'm just overfilling that, that bucket. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I do think there'd be value in that type of stuff where, Hey, one day you're going to do the foot and ankle jump rudiments on a flat surface. The next day you're going to do it on, or the other day of the week that you do it, you'll do it on the the different surface or the slant or something like that. I think that would be worth looking into, uh, but that wouldn't be something that I get to solely decide
1: myself. Oh, we're going to do it this way. Done. Yeah, that decision making process is done with the sport coach or with the track coach more specifically. Exactly. But even for really any event over the 100, I definitely think there's some, some good value in that because you've got that curve. So the ankle is actually moving in at that lateral, dealing with those lateral forces more so. So the Polish box challenging both like inversion and inversion is it's a unique stimulus that has a very similar effect that helps build some of that capacity. That they do experience on the track.
0: Yeah. And last year we had what on our roster, I think it was like 52 endurance athletes, which probably 40 of the 52 run cross country. Yeah. You guys have a massive where you're dealing with unstable surfaces and landing on going uphill, downhill, yeah, slanted left, slanted right. So I think even more of that would be a benefit to, to those athletes as well that are dealing with true yeah. unstable surfaces. So yeah, that's 100% something I would like to look into again. That's a, you know, yeah. sit down with the coaches when we put together kind of year planning review, whatever, Hey, Here's the value, I think, of this. How could we implement it? Could we do it in this way? Maybe they have a different idea that I might like even more of hey, what if we did it this way and that way? Done. Perfect. Um, but yeah, that would be more integrating with the collective coaching staff rather than me going, hey, I I'd rather do it this way than that way. So I'll do it that way in the weight room.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's always figuring out those pieces of okay, what do we integrate within the track and the track session itself and then in the gym, which I guess that's both, that's, I mean, that's a benefit in the track world because it's so tightly connected that, that those conversations are more readily happening, right? Versus if you're working some team sport, maybe the hoppers are happening in the S&C session. Yeah. And then you've really got a lot of decision-making to,
0: to make, or yeah, you have to find time in that hour session, how to get all of that stuff in. Yeah. Where it may not be feasible is where like the jumps and the
1: hops and all that plyometric stuff actually fits way more naturally on the track, yeah. I think. Oh hundred percent. I there's no point in doing it twice, right? Like it's silly for you to do on the track and then go, oh, we're gonna do it again in the weight room after the track. Like that's yeah. zero point. Zero yeah. point. So do you have any other like ideas or things that you were gonna like try with a lot of the stuff we're I'm planning on kind of doing again in the fall, kind of once the season restarts and we're at more of a building phase. It's definitely a little bit similar to your end. A lot of the loaded carries is something we're gonna be doing and looking at doing a lot of. We're also gonna do just a lot of barefoot running drills in general. Something we're gonna go a lot. So we've okay. got a big turf field right outside our facility. So one thing we're gonna do is part of our SNC warm up. So most of our athletes don't run and train it's a little bit different than your setting. Like they're not doing a track session and then coming into the gym after we're pretty separated. So we actually do a fair amount of hop rudiments and running drills in our four S&C stuff. So a lot of the stuff I'm looking at doing a lot of that stuff barefoot, doing it on the turf. Or we've got a slope was our slope. I think it's a 10 degree slope hill outside our gym as well. So doing a lot of those sort of things on the hill in bare feet to get more of that toe and forefoot. So it's integration of some of those little pieces with more run specific drills and stuff doing a lot more of the loaded carries in barefoot or doing the loaded carries in like full plantar flexion, and really challenging that as well um but beyond that we've covered kind of most of it a lot of it through like the overcoming isometrics using the 22 degree incline challenging both either lateral or medial deviation with the foot there in the ankle using slanted surfaces yeah there's not a whole lot beyond that that i don't think we've we've covered in the session so far. The only couple of closing thoughts I
0: had here, and these were more question marks because it was like, yes. okay, in theory, I wonder, would be what? going back to the incline, the 22 degree, is there value of that if you're doing seated or bent leg activity through the ankle? I like, think so. My guess is yes, but I mean, obviously the study looked at straight leg, heel raise activities that didn't look at. Like if I'm doing a seated, uh, like over or, uh, like an overcoming or yielding ISO in a seated position, would I be better off to have the foot on a 20 degree slant board as I'm holding that position or pushing through the foot in that position for soleus, or does it matter again? It might be something that I start to implement where it's feasible because why not, maybe there's more activation. Yeah. Great. And if there's not, well, it doesn't matter. I'm still getting the same benefit out of it that I was, was intending, but there was part of me that was wondering, okay, anytime we do a seated or bent leg activity at the ankle, more so targeting soleus, would there be benefit in using that incline? Again, my guess based on the results of the other study is yes, but I don't know if it's been explicitly looked at to... To the point where there's empirical
1: evidence that specifically reports, that would be a good use of your training. Yeah, there's no specific looking at with the bent knee and exactly in my mind, and this one my gut tells me from how I understood the article from Shu and Torstein was the slant board affects the length tension relationship. At the it, foot specifically with the big toe. So regardless you your senior or standing, that's still occurring if you're on the slant board. Exactly. So it should be, in my mind, that that should work. That makes complete total sense.
0: Yeah. So there was part of me that, that wonders because I do have the, I make the intention of putting in a lot of bent and straight leg yeah. activities in there. So I thought, okay, with the bent leg, heel raise, foot activity and things like that that you're doing, there's probably benefit to. You know elevating the the foot for the bent leg stuff so i think that that's something that i probably will try to implement where i can Uh, because again my guess is worst case scenario you're getting no added benefit best case scenario you're getting additional activation and load and stimulus through the tissue and if i can get that basically for free i'm going to take it
1: well realistically if at worst you're the same it doesn't make sense not to implement it, right? Like if your worst case scenario with implementing this object or this item or this constraint that's done the same as it was done before, but the possible upside is 20% better improvement, like it's silly not to, right? That's what I mean. I'm thinking that. And
0: then the other idea I was kind of having as you get into, again, kind of further down the funnel where the foot ankle complex works together is that, you know, when we looked at the the foot and when the toes are extended, you're in like a plantar flexed mm-hmm. position, similar to like what you would be in acceleration or change of direction type activities was now thinking, okay, do I have to classify, it? not reclassify like the end of the funnel, but you make note of, Hey, this is an exercise that is done with the toes extended in a plantar flexed position. That maybe pairs better being done on days where I'm changing direction, heavy acceleration, things like that, where I'm actually in that position where the toes are going to be extended as I plantar flex and apply force into the ground versus days where I'm doing more upright things. The foot is, it's more flat footed and you don't get as much movement through the toes in terms of a like extended position are those things that are better targeted towards upright and then whether you want to use them on the same days because train the same on the same day or the opposite because hey today we were doing a bunch of acceleration work and change direction so we loaded that stuff a lot let's do the, the flat-footed variety yeah or you know the next day hey, you did a lot of upright sprinting and upright work your foot was in that position so let's get it into a different position I don't think that matters I think that's more of a What's your philosophy? How do you want to, you know, do you want to work in opposition or do you want to work the same? That doesn't really matter. But I was thinking further down the road, there are some of those foot-ankle complex activities that can be done more flat-footed in a way that would match upright mechanics and running more versus a plantar-flexed toes-extended position that's more prevalent in change of direction and acceleration, deceleration type work. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the thoughts I had too, was that, do you pair like with like, or do you go in opposition with, with that? But it's probably something I would consider. And I, I think I am going to consider that and play around with it when I implement the further progression yeah. spectrum of the exercises. So I well, wasn't sure my... what your thoughts were there.
1: Yeah. Well, in my mind, where I go with that. When we're looking, and I think it depends on how acceleration dominant the athlete is or how acceleration dominant the event is specifically, because that's what you looked at when you looked at the special of the correlation stuff or like variance explanation. The more horizontally driven that movement is going to be so early acceleration horizontal jumping like the broad jump, the foot and the toes make a bigger influence and a bigger impact. So in my mind, a lot of that conversation around, okay, do we do it the same day? Do we do it different days? Do we do it multiple times in the week? A lot of that is decided by like who's in front or how acceleration dominant they are. So someone is, if you got a hundred meter runner and they're a really big pusher, maybe they're a little bit shorter in stature. The accelerations where they make up a lot of ground, that could be a really big well for you to get performance gains by doing it even maybe more than just on the acceleration days, but doing it even on a max V day, because that's a huge strength for them. Mm -hmm. Or if you get somebody who's really springy, really bouncy, maybe their acceleration is not great. Maybe they're much more bouncy, elastic, upright, dominant runners. Maybe it's not as big of a piece, right? Maybe they could get away with doing it only on the acceleration day, or you don't do it on the acceleration day because it's a massive stimulus for something they're not good at. Yeah. You do it once on the max V day where they've already got a lot of the the bouncy elastic stimulus. There's a lot of ways to go about it, but uh, yeah, I think it really depends on your philosophy, right? If you're more of vertical vertical integration, Charlie Francis guy, where hey, we're gonna do a little bit of everything on every day, or if you're yeah. doing more like the tactical periodization, where hey, this is we're doing an acceleration load, everything's gonna be this one big acceleration based stimulus, right? So it's yeah, yeah. I think the way how you go about that depends on your your philosophy, but I think it depends more on the individual themselves. And how much you give it to them and then how much they need acceleration. Because you're 815 folks. Acceleration is a pretty small piece of what they do. Probably don't need it more than once or twice a week. Probably once at most.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Again, like you said, the the importance for the individual probably varies based on their event and and mm-hmm. the, their yeah. qualities. But it was something that I considered it's probably worth in the progression in the planning that you have to make note of or consider is this an uh a heavily loaded foot ankle complex activity which is more biased towards a flat foot or one that's yeah. more biased towards a plantar flexed foot with extended toes um, because again I think it's probably worth like you said worth considering and yeah. maybe this individual needs a little more of that maybe that person needs a little more of, of that but it was something that I hadn't really thought about until we dove into the more the theoretical side of the foot the anatomy the function where I was like Oh, yeah, maybe not every foot ankle complex activity is equal. Oh, because yeah. a flat footed activity will do something a little bit different than a plantar flexed uh, exercise. And that's probably worth noting at the very least, where if you're trying to decide, do I put this one or that one? Uh, what we do a lot of this on those days or this individual, maybe that one is better than I'm going to do something more flat footed than plantar flexed or something more plantar flexed than flat footed it was at the very least it was something i think was worth considering how you end up implementing it who knows um i think every option you put in front uh as you know as the options to pick from i think they're all feasible yeah like you said based on what's in front of you but those were kind of two question mark thoughts i had that had come out of the the part 1 where we were looking at the the papers and the anatomy and the structure and function of yeah. the foot where i was like oh okay heel raise stuff in a bent leg position, can you do it on an elevated surface? Probably worth it. And then should we be categorizing some of the foot-ankle complex stuff based on the the foot position to better prescribe or match the the activity?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the last piece with that is really what's coming after it too. Like if you're doing lots of bent, like elevated toe, bent ankle, bent knee stuff, we got like an acceleration coming the next day it's maybe a don't do it that day kind of thing like what are the knock-on effects of it or kind of you said as that funnel goes down maybe you get more liberty to do really big horizontal based stuff where it's toes up because they've built up that capacity yeah lots of different ways to go about it but it's definitely something worth considering the broader planning structure of the week for sure
0: yeah i think it just at least for me it would help organized where if i'm trying to pick between a few exercises then it yeah. might be the the deciding factor of oh yeah flat-footed thing might be better yeah. or oh a bent uh like a plantar flex foot might be the better thing so um yeah those are just kind of the two closing thoughts that i had that weren't really covered in anything that we specifically uh kind of talked about that yeah those are the only two points i had left so i wasn't sure if you had anything that was like kind of ideas or something that had come
1: from the readings or anything from before. No, we kind of covered it throughout the the chat, honestly, like we've kind of touched on all those points. And I guess it's always that it's, the, the big question for me is how much does classical things we do like plyometrics affect that stimulus, especially as we go down that funnel where it gets more sports specific. It's like, okay, if I'm getting 80 contacts in a session, how much has that filled my bucket? We may never know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's where, like I said, I think training the foot is probably, it's important to at least try because I don't want to just be passive and assume, Hey, everything we're doing from a plyometric standpoint, checks all the boxes for the foot. We're good to go. Cause that it, it might be the case, but in the chance that it's not, then at least I'm doing due diligence and I'm making sure I'm still addressing that component of training Oh, not totally. just
1: haphazardly being like, oh yeah, good enough. Yeah, it becomes that it becomes a curious conversation. Of like, how does that quantify with all the other plyometric we're loading? Right. Like if I'm doing 80 contacts, but then doing, you know, two or three foot exercise, like where, how does that, and I think this is part of the conversation. Neither of us have done this yet. We haven't gone through the season of playing with all the foot training and how that interferes or how that has knock on effects to accumulating load volume on plow and accumulating load volume on running. Right. It'll be interesting to see when you go through that process of first foot session, people wake up the next day, everyone's foot arches are super sore and stiff.
0: Yeah. And then what does that end up doing to, does it negatively impact performance? Does it, is it like, yeah, it's sore, but I can work through it. I'm still running around and jumping really well or yeah. like, yeah, I think as we actually do it, we'll get a better sense of like, what does it actually do? Yeah. From like you said, a knock on effect, positive, negative, neutral, whatever.
1: Yeah. I mean, realistically, in my mind, at this point, it's f- training of the foot part three this time next year, once we've gone through a season and gone, hey, this is what we did. This is what the things we experienced. This is how the athletes felt. These are the adjustments we made because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Maybe this is where we pulled a shoot on some things or did more of others. It's It'll be interesting to see and work through this again in a year we actually got through the process of implementing more structured organized and purposeful foot training
0: yeah that's a very good point is i think there's probably a third part on this coming but it's a you know season review yeah of what we've talked about now because we kind of have to wait until september to probably implement this in the best possible way that we could do it yeah uh, i think if if i had tried to do some of this with the group and the timing and all that it would have been it wouldn't have been the smartest thing to do. So I didn't want to do it that way.
1: No, and there there's always that trade off between, hey, we've got new ideas and we want to work with them, but also understanding the context of where you're at in the year and knowing and being comfortable with the idea of this isn't playing with new stuff time of year. Like we're racing in two weeks. We can't play with new things and potentially impact someone's ability to qualify for U Sport Nationals or Canwest yeah, or not Canwest, exactly. whatever the Ontario equivalent of Canwest is.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, it wasn't the time to play around with stuff. And so fortunately in September, we're both going to get to kind of play around with the stuff more and, you know, trade ideas. And yeah, that that's probably where the part three is coming for this is once we've actually done it and have more to report back than just, Hey, we did some very rudimentary foot stuff and it went
1: okay. Yeah. So it'll be coming in summer of 2024. I feel like this is a Hollywood movie reveal part three of the foot summer yeah. 2024 the trilogy will be complete insert really dramatic orchestrated music i'll see if i can figure that out my editing skills aren't that good we'll play with it but uh speaking of things that you can play around with quite regular throughout the year is gym music oh
0: i was on the pop punk train
1: Oh, you've got a pop punk powerhouse uh, kind of revitalization there.
0: Uh, yeah, not that exact playlist off of Spotify, but kind of pop punk. Uh, do you remember Yellow Card?
1: Oh, yellow card's great.
0: Yeah, so yellow card and song forty one were kind of the two that I was I was going to, but yeah, it was like just brought back yeah, the pop punk powerhouse memories of being in the whatever i f- forget when they changed the name whatever that weight room we worked in at the u of a changed names a couple of times um, oh yeah hbtrc and then it was the spc and then it was i don't know what whatever it was but yeah the number of times we were in there and we had the pop punk powerhouse playlist going and there was yeah some some 41 blink 182 yellow card um my chemical romance would- sneak in there for a few
1: green day in there Uh,
0: green day good charlotte Oh, like there's all kinds of just like just good stuff like that so yeah yellow card and some 41 specifically i was listening to the other day and that stuff has aged well it's still just as good
1: punk music i feel like is a genre of music you look back onto and you're going like okay this is this is just as good as it ever was like it doesn't you never grow out of it. You always have this really nostalgic feeling when you listen to it. You're like, yeah, I'm an angsty 16 year old kid again.
0: Yeah. And whether you're an angsty 16 year old kid or not, yeah. it, like I said, it, it stands the test of time. Oh, yeah. And it's still ju- as where some other stuff have gone back and listened to him and like, oh, okay, yeah, this is garbage. Like, yeah. how did I like this at one point The the pop
1: punk, it, it holds true. So well, it was very versatile. Like you can be out having a barbecue and that song comes on and everyone's like, yeah, like this is awesome. Or you're out working out yeah. you can have I a just, great workout to that.
0: The pop punk stands the test of time and at least going back, listening to some 41 and yellow card. I was like, yeah, okay. That, that holds
1: true. Yeah. wow. Oh, yeah. It would be a great concert to go to. I went to Billy <laughs> talent. Awesome concert. I can imagine some 41 or one of those bands. Fantastic. Yeah. That'd be unreal. What did you have playing this week? I've been doing this, uh, I haven't been listening to specific artists recently. I've been going on Apple Music and putting on like a, like a new and dance or like a trance essentials or uh, like a drum and bass, just like random playlists and just seeing how it goes. And it's hit and miss. Sometimes you're like, this is an awesome playlist. I'm going to download all these songs. Yeah. I a couple song. where it just absolutely blew up. But when you brought up Daft Punk last time. Oh, Okay a song came on where i was like holy crap this is a blast from the past and this is an old tune did you ever listen to kerncraft 400 oh by zombie nation
0: who, who, who hasn't everybody knows know. that song
1: it came on like i was listening to this playlist i was just working out and i was going through and the song came on. i was like oh my god i couldn't remember the last time i had listened to the song it was great i loved it yeah and speaking of songs that have aged well Oh, it's an all-time top 10 great song for any kind of dance, techno, EDM era. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Oh, no, I fully approve of that. Now I'm going to go listen to it at some point because, yeah, it's one that, yeah.
1: You just hear it and you're instantly like, oh, yeah, this song. Great. It's it's like like Sandstorm. It's one of those kind of iconic songs where it comes on. Everyone knows it. There's no person who doesn't. And you're just, yeah, you're ready to go. You're fired up. You're like, yeah, yeah.
0: And then put it on repeat a few times because I haven't heard it in a while. So if you Yo, play it oh, three yeah. or four times in a row, I'm not sick of it. Just, yeah, yeah, let me have it. Let me have it. The first half of your workout is done to that one song. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's a big tune. That was and still is. That's, yeah, to me, it stands the test of time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. I'll hear it 20 years from now and still be like, yeah, that that song is exactly where it's at.
1: Yeah, so that's been that's been the the music that's the music choice this week because it's been mostly just rabbit holes of random playlists, which have either gone very poorly or very well. Yeah. No, that's good, man. That's good. I approve of that. I love it.
0: Forgot about that song, and now I'm not gonna get to go listen to it. Can't wait. As soon as you get off the call. Thomas yeah, B On runs. repeat. On repeat. Let's go.
1: <laughs> so. I will say that Daft Punk album you got me on last show though. Awesome.
0: The new stuff is really good. Like they they don't miss. They do not miss.
1: Well, I really enjoyed because there wasn't many actual songs on that playlist or that album.
0: Yeah, there was only like, I think, three or four new things. Yeah, like never heard before songs, but they also had some of the like the drafts, I guess, of like the rough copies of songs that they ended up putting on random access memories.
1: And those are still
0: just as good, man.
1: I really enjoyed listening to some of the early drafts or some of the instrumentals of, of like classic songs that they put out. This is like that song, but it's not quite there, but it's quite enjoyable from like a nostalgic piece of this is this classic song. And you can listen to its early stages before it was actually like polished and released. That was cool for me to listen to. I really enjoyed that part of that album.
0: The part that actually blew my mind is this unpolished raw and Daft Punk's eyes, non-releasable yeah. music is better than like a lot of stuff that gets out there. But like, Apple just, Pro, I, 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 th- I think it was a glimpse of like, just like how good their stuff actually is. Oh, yeah. Like, the like I said, the rough, unpolished stuff that didn't make it on the release is better than 95% of the finished products that go out there in the music world and it, it just speaks volumes to the, the talent and the creativity. And yeah, I loved listening to it. So
1: I'm glad that you like also enjoyed it. Yeah. I feel like I had to bring on the show. Cause that's what we talked about in the last episode. And I very much yeah. enjoyed working through that yeah. album a few times. Cause it was, it was cool to listen to. I enjoyed that. Yeah, no, that's good, man. I'm glad, like I said, they, I think everything
0: we've talked about here in the music section is like music and artists that have stood and will stand the test of time. Oh. And that's probably the, the theme of the music today so classics. yeah man that's Great awesome classics. that's awesome so yeah that was good stuff i love talking about this the the foot kind of a lot of good ideas i think it was probably good for us to have this conversation to formulate ideas moving forward
1: absolutely 100 just help get the gears rolling a little bit and start kind of clarifying some of the fog around oh how do i want to go about executing this in the fall like it's nice to work through that process
0: for sure. Exactly. So yeah, I, I had a lot of fun. And if, if anyone has any ideas or questions or things that they've done, and they want to share with us. I'm more than happy to hear it. So, you know, at coach proofer uh, at speed, strength, performance for myself on, on Instagram, feel free to, to reach out. I'd love to hear about what, you know, like I said, ideas and what other people are doing. And uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun recording this and, I guess we'll see what we get up to next time.
1: I'm excited for part three next summer.
0: Yeah. And whatever else we have in between that. So we'll see where we'll see where we go after this part with, you know, the next episode and and things like that. So, so yeah. So again, all the listeners, all the viewers, uh, everybody who's, you know, supporting the show, appreciate it. Uh, hope you learned something. We had a lot of fun doing this and, uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for tagging along and and being there, and we'll uh, we'll catch you on the next episode.
1: Catch you on the next one, guys.